The sermon shifted on me late this week, so bear with me. Critically important message today that I will try to plow through. I'm not as familiar with my own messages as I sometimes am. If you're visiting today, thanks so much for coming. We're in the middle of the process, as you may have gathered, of uh, building a facility. As you leave here, go out to Gum Spring Road, you take a left. On your way out to 50, there are a series of obnoxious signs that say Gateway Community Church. That's our property. Uh, someone was just asking me this morning, there's actually a road cut in to the right, a dirt road. That is where Tall Cedars Parkway will be, and they'll begin Tall Cedars Parkway this spring. But that's not Tall Cedars Parkway. All the woods between us and South Riding have now been bought by Van Meter, and Van Meter is going to do a development in there, and that, that is an access road. Van Meter asked our permission and built an access road back into those woods so they could begin pre-construction uh, work. But that's our property. So that place where the road cuts in, from that corner down, uh, I don't know, 300 yards, all of those woods where the signs are, that's Gateway. And this spring, God willing, county providing, and site plan approval being accomplished, we will break ground and knock down trees. We'll begin site work this spring. In this process, occasionally, I'm reading articles about building and ran into this article by this architect who was talking about building houses, really, but all kinds of facilities in extreme conditions. The immediate context for this article, he was a Southern California architect, and he was talking about the places in Southern California, you know, in the hills that typically that, that uh, people are building their homes. But what he was saying was applicable to all sorts of contexts. I thought it was interesting. Kind of, you know, one of the main themes of his article was never fool with Mother Nature, you'll lose every time. But he, he said an, a very interesting thing I thought is applicable to our lesson today. He was talking about not, not only building facilities, but connecting those facilities to existing infrastructure, you know, sewer and water and electricity and all that. And he said this, you can build a house in the middle of the desert, but it will not be a house you can live in effectively. For example, you will have no access to water and no easy way of disposing of waste. So he's talking about the need for, in order to live effectively in a home, you, you've got to be connected to an infrastructure. And I would say, for our purposes, you can build a life without a connection to God. But it will be a less effective and less meaningful life than it was designed to be, than it could be. If you're not connected to the spiritual infrastructure that God provides, then your life will be less effective and less meaningful than it was designed to be, than it could be. So we've talked for the last three weeks about a connection with God, and we said in week one, we need to connect to something. You know, the proverbial God-shaped vacuum. And we will satisfy that need one way or another. We will welcome and nurture a connection with God, or we will fill that space with accumulation of stuff, or with busyness, or with distraction, or with addiction, or with depression, or something. Week two, we began looking at a couple of practices, a couple of habits, life habits, that we said were indispensable in building a connection with God. We looked first at practicing creative devotion. So we talked about the habit, the life habit, the pattern of building a regular time of devotion, a regular time of connecting with God. We acknowledge that, like any other relationship, you can't have a healthy relationship with God if you don't relate to God. 
And then last week we talked about the second indispensable habit in building and nurturing and maintaining a connection with God, and that is using our resources with wisdom and purpose. This is, of course, challenging for wealthy suburbanites because we have a lot of resources. And so it's indispensable for you and I in our connection with God to use our resources with wisdom and purpose. You know, this isn't a series about money, but or even about, in a larger context, about our resources. But as I was thinking about, I had a couple of conversations this week that reminded me of this, and as I was thinking about the message last week, using your resources with with wisdom and purpose, I think I, I wanted to acknowledge to myself and to us, really is difficult in our context. You and I don't think of this, but we have an extraordinary amount of disposable income. We really do. If this week you're on your way to work, your car breaks down, you get it to a mechanic, you find out it's going to cost $2,200 to have it fixed. For the overwhelming majority of you, and maybe all of you, you make that happen. You come up with $2,200. Or later this winter or this summer, your air conditioning unit or your heating unit goes out. It's going to cost you $7,000 or $8,000 to replace that. And you will make that happen. You'll get it done. Your home will be heated and cooled. That means that you and I have an extraordinary amount of disposable income available to us. The majority of people in the world, if they were asked to give up $1,400, that would take them five years. They just would have no access to that kind of income, those kind of resources. Now, I don't say that to to hammer you or I or to make you or I feel guilty because it is extremely important for us to take care of our families, to take care of our own health. It's extremely important for us to plan for the future. And all that to say, this business of using resources with wisdom and purpose is very, very challenging. Let's face it. If someone comes to Gateway and says, you know, I'm in such a desperate place, I need $5,000 to make it through the next three months. I could tap any three families at Gateway. And for most of you, I could just tap one of you. And you really could make that happen easily. You could give them $5,000. It wouldn't change what you eat this week. It wouldn't change your activity. What that means is it's God has put us in a position where this is really challenging to use our resources with wisdom and purpose. But critically, critically important because we have so many resources. Don't need to feel guilty about that. God has placed us in this position. But it means that this isn't a secondary concern for you and I. This is a central concern that we use our resources with wisdom and purpose. We learned last week that that's what the, the right use of our resources, we can use our resources, we can leverage our resources to secure our highest and truest happiness. But to do that, we have to live generously, and do good deeds. That's what the Bible tells us explicitly. Well, today, we want to make a a kind of fundamental point. We want to go back, if we can, to square one for all of us. For many of you this morning, this will be a reminder. For a few of you, this may be new news. Today, we want to talk about both the initiation of a connection with God, and then it also speaks to the the maintenance and the nurturing of of a connection with God. Here's what we want to say today. You cannot have a real and difference-making connection with God without a life-altering experience of God. 
You cannot have a real and difference-making connection with God without a life-altering experience of God. And Jesus makes that experience available to us. So I told you a little while ago that we're in a building process here at Gateway. This is actually, some of you may know, this is actually our second attempt at this. We began a building process six or seven years ago, and that process got cut off because we couldn't get access to sewer. Even though you can throw a rock from our property across the street to the townhomes that they were building at the time in Stone Ridge with plenty of sewer, we couldn't have access to that sewer because by county design, the dividing line was gum spring. So sewer came from the east instead of from the west, and we needed it to come from South Riding up Tall Cedars Parkway, which wasn't built yet. There were plans to build Tall Cedars Parkway, and when the recession hit, all of that fell apart, and with it, sewer fell apart. Now, we could have paid a million and a half or two million additional dollars to bring the sewer to ourselves, but we didn't want to do that to our project. So we ended up, we had to decide either we build a building where we can't ever use the bathroom, or we wait until development issues change and clear it, because we needed the infrastructure. We needed to be connected. And in that infrastructure, this is what's going to happen when we do groundbreaking. When we do groundbreaking, we're going to go over there and they're going to knock down a bunch of trees and then they're going to dig holes in the ground. And they're going to bring sewer up Tall Cedars Parkway. It's going to come to the edge of our property and developers have worked with Jan to point out exactly where that's going to come in. And then we will dig holes on our property, lay pipes in those holes and connect to the sewer at exactly that point, tap it in and bring it up to where it's going to come up into our building so we can have both water and we can get rid of that water when we need to. We'll be tapped in, you know, they'll find a big giant wrench and they'll turn it and they'll, they'll connect it and connect it, done. And once that's connected, then that connection over the years will have to be maintained and nourished, but we will not have access to that infrastructure without that connecting point, without that day when we lay all the pipes down and we screw them in together and then we bring them up into our building. You cannot have a real and difference-making connection with God without a life-altering experience of God. Otherwise, it's religion. It's ritual. It's superstition. And Jesus makes that experience of God available to us. So we're going to read a titanic passage of Scripture. We actually referred to this passage a few weeks ago on uh, Christmas Eve. But we're going to read this morning about Jesus' interaction with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 3. So I'll be looking at John 3 First verses 1 through 8, and then later we'll go further than that. If you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 3. It's two-thirds of the way toward the back of the Bible. If you have a Bible out, look up John chapter 3, and it'll be on the screen. If you would, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word, and let's read John chapter 3. I'll read the first eight verses. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi... We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You may be seated. So there's no question that Nicodemus was, in some sense, a believer. He was a Pharisee, and then that meant that he was a very strict follower of the law. It meant he was very, very familiar with the Old Testament, with the Old Testament prescriptions and with Old Testament regulations and with Old Testament stories. He knew how God operated. He knew what God had done for his people throughout history. It's also clear from this that Nicodemus was very open to Jesus and to who Jesus was. However, that wasn't enough. Nicodemus was profoundly religious. Nicodemus believed in God. Nicodemus had an openness to Jesus, but there was still something missing in Nicodemus' heart, in his life, and in his story. Nicodemus had never had a life-altering experience with God. He had never had an encounter with God that was bone-shattering and changed the trajectory of his life. In verse 3, Jesus says, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And that word see means to experience, to encounter, to participate in. In chapter 7 of John, Jesus uses that same word to say in the phrase, see death. Later in this chapter, he uses the same phrase to say, see life, or to experience life. It means to participate in, to encounter. No one can really have a connection with God. No one can be part of the kingdom of God unless you have experienced God. Unless you have, to use Jesus' metaphor, unless you have been born again. It's interesting, that word, again, it's a Greek word, anothen. And usually that word means again in a temporal sense, like a second time or another time, a subsequent time. It can also mean in a subsequent place, like from outside or from above. There are, in fact, a minority of translators and commentaries will take this phrase to mean, suggest that Jesus is saying you must be born from above. I, in fact, think that Jesus may be playing with this notion and suggesting both here. What he's saying is that something brand new, something brand new must happen to you. This is not religion. This is not ritual. This is an encounter with God that changes the structure of your spiritual bones. It gives you a completely different perspective on life. Okay, this is Ed speak. But if you will indulge me for a second, I'm going to kind of big picture survey different spiritual positions, if I may. I think over here, this will be, if you're listening to this later at home, I'm standing on the right side of the stage relative to how the audience is looking at it. But I I don't want you to think about this as left or right. This isn't, not in social or political terms, just incidentally I'm going to stand here. There has been a movement throughout the American church. We could probably go further back than that, but let's just take American history. There's been a movement throughout the American church that 
we might call, let's call it revivalism. It dates back to probably Jonathan Edwards, if you know that name, and the early revivals of the 1700s in in New England, and that, that spread down into the Middle Atlantic. It was religion that focused on an encounter with God and an experience with God. What came out of those early revivals was in the 1800s, a guy named, if you know this name, a guy named Charles Finney, and then it was also circuit preachers uh, among Methodists throughout the East Coast and, and Baptists throughout the East Coast. On this side over here, inheriting the tradition of sort of revivalism, loosely, I mean, this is a way oversimplification, but bear with me. Inheriting this tradition of revivalism, you have parachurch organizations, like if you're familiar with these kind of things, like Youth for Christ or InterVarsity or Campus Crusade that work on college campuses or Young Life that works in high school setting. You have whole denominational movements like the Assemblies of God or Southern Baptist or most non-denominational churches. And I, I think it's fair to say that Gateway, our church, stands largely in this tradition, in the revivalism tradition. The beauty of this tradition is it takes this passage and others like it very, very seriously. It has, over the years, called people to an, a bone-shattering encounter with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. I grew up in a, a tradition that was very much rooted in re- revivalism. In my church, some of you are familiar with this. You know, it was an old-school Baptist church in the South. Every Sunday at the end of our service, the pastor would say, So if there's anybody here who has never had an experience of God because of what Jesus Christ has done, we want to make that available to you right now. It's as simple as, and this was all true, it's as simple as you coming down this morning and saying with and in your heart, I want to accept God and and I want to be saved. And it would use that language often, and that's New Testament language. That's the language that the New Testament guys use to describe their experience with God. Think about that. Their experience with God was so bone-shattering, they ransacked the language to come up with images that would portray how radically they felt like they had been changed because of what God had done. One of their favorite images was, I've been saved. And so this tradition would often use that kind of language. You need, this tradition would say, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They were absolutely right. So firmly rooted in this tradition was the acknowledgement of this that you cannot have a real and difference-making connection with God without a life-altering experience of God. There were also some hidden dangers in this tradition. And if you spent much of your Christian life here, you'll know this and you'll be familiar with this. There was the danger of over-emotionalism. You know, often the life-altering encounter with God would be equated with a wild emotional religious experience in a church service somewhere. I mean, the more emotional you got, the more certain we are that you've really had an encounter with God. There was also the danger in this tradition that I think I would summarize it with us versus them thinking. You know, it's we, it's us, the insiders. We're right, and everybody else is wrong, and you could create a sense of judgmentalism or superiority over here. There's also, and if you're listening to this later, I'm standing on the other side of the stage. There's also another strain of religious life in the history of America. Interestingly, I can oversimplify and divide them up like this because 
you'll find, especially at the academic level, authors and pastors pitting themselves against one another. Like going back even to that first revival movement with Jonathan Edwards, there were American pastors on the other side of the ledger who were critical of that movement for the the over-emotionalism and the kind of mentality, us versus them mentality that were being created. Let's call this, for lack of a better word, let's call this side of the ledger institutionalism. And in institutionalism, what you ended up having was, you know, this kind of approach to religion, let's say. By the way, let me say, parentheses, it's certainly not the case that everyone who would cut their teeth in this tradition, agreed with one another, who had the same positives or negatives? Of course not. I'm I'm oversimplifying. It's also not the case that everyone who grew out of this kind of tradition really had this sort of life-changing experience with God. There are people who have come to Gateway for weeks or months or years who are still, I think, probably, I don't know anyone, (laughs) but I, I suspect probably still trying to do religion that have not really had an encounter with God, that have not experienced Him, that have not seen it, to use Jesus' words, that have not partaken of it. Over here on this side, you find a religious structure that tended to encourage and promote profound reverence for God, which, of course, is great. And it encouraged ritual and the disciplined structure of religion which can be very good. But the criticisms over here would be it tended to de-emphasize an encounter with God, an experiential, difference-making, bone-shattering encounter with God. And because of that de-emphasis, in part, maybe largely, because of that de-emphasis, what often ended up happening over here was a sort of dead orthodoxy. So you ended up over here a lot of, not all certainly, but a lot of uh, what are called mainline churches. Like some of you grew up in these traditions like the Presbyterian church or certain Presbyterian churches or Episcopalian church, even some Lutheran churches and some Catholic churches would be in this tradition discouraging a kind of encounter with God sort of religious approach. Of course not all, I'm oversimplifying. I'm, I'm doing all of this to make a point. And over time, it's the case, while there were some disadvantages over here, there's some things that we could be critical of, what tended to happen over here is it cut the heart out of these churches. It ended up leaving them lifeless often. This kind of context has at times made a connection with God difficult because it ended up being a house built in the desert. And they could be lovely homes with nice vistas and beautiful living rooms, well-appointed. In other words, they did the ritual really, really well, but they weren't connected to anything. They were never connected, really connected, to spiritual infrastructure. They were trying to work out the machinations of religion without a connection to something real. While their criticism of revivalism have been legitimate, in many cases, very legitimate, their answer to it has been often vacant and lifeless, because it's failed to emphasize a genuine, bone-shattering, life-altering experience of God that Jesus makes available to us. Let me add one more category, and we'll do this real quickly. We'll put them right here in the middle. Let's call this category the new spirituality. And in this, and this is, of course, culturally current, especially today, 
In the new spirituality, this is the religion of Oprah Winfrey. The specifics of what you believe don't matter so much. What matters is that you're sincere and that you're genuine. What matters is, and this is critical, what matters is that you're getting in touch with yourself and with the spirit within. So it's an interior search within yourself to find that you know, deepest and truest part of yourself. I want to suggest that Jesus' teaching in John 3 is a radical repudiation of this middle view. And it's a course correction to this perspective, I'm suggesting. Now, of course, there are many other passages that we could go to that would be course corrections for this perspective, and we've done that over time. But this teaching in particular today, I think, is a repudiation of this view and the middle view. And it's a dramatic course correction for this view over here. Because what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, look, you're the man. I mean, you get it. Buddy, you have done it. You've done the religion thing. You've done it better than most. You're a Pharisee. Awesome. Way to go, Nick. And, you know, I appreciate your openness to me, your openness to who I am. I mean, that's awesome. But listen, in order for you to have what you're looking for, in order for you to fill up that hole, you've got to be born a nothing. You've got to be born kind of like a whole new thing happen, born again and from above. This isn't you finding the best you. This is something outside of you changing you, reaching in and shaking you up. This is an encounter with God. This is not intellectual assent to doctrine and religious ritual. They're not enough. You have to have a life-altering experience of God, an encounter with God, in order to have a connection with God. You've got to be plugged in to the infrastructure. And this experience comes from outside of ourselves. Jesus makes this experience available to us. He says as much here and more so later. Like the house in the desert. It's not connected to any infrastructure. It can't be lived in effectively. Our lives cannot be lived in effectively, I don't believe, apart from this kind of connecting. Now, you've heard the stories here at Gateway. Those of you who are part of Gateway, you've heard those stories here. Experiencing God has happened to people through conversation with others. It's happened in church services. It's it's happened alone in rooms. It's happened in a car. It's happened out in the woods. Experiencing God has happened for some here slowly over time, and it's happened for others dramatically and all at once. Experiencing God has happened in childhood here. We've seen it in re- repeatedly in baptisms here at Gateway. We've heard them tell their stories, and they, we've been encouraged. We've heard their stories, and we've heard 12-year-olds speak, and after hearing them speak, all of us have felt, what? I want to be a Christian again. That's incredible. It's happened in childhood. It's happened in teen years. We've seen that repeatedly here at Gateway, and that's some of your story. It's happened in our 20s. It's happened in our 30s. It's happened in our 40s. It's happened in our 50s. It's even happened in our 60s. A bone-shattering, life-altering experience of God that makes connection, real connection with God, possible. Experiencing, this kind of experience, this kind of encountering, it involves a powerful, convincing experience of the realness of God. It involves a, holy smokes, This is real. I mean, it's really real. 
It involves a clear picture of who Jesus is and what he did. It always comes with that. It involves a clear recognition of my own need. I've got this hole in me, and I've tried to fill that hole with relationships. I Just look at the way I've done relationships. I've tried to fill that hole with drugs. I've tried to fill that hole with stuff, and it's not filled. It comes with a change of heart and perspective on almost everything. It comes with a realignment of our priorities, and it comes with a whole new set of beliefs and convictions. Okay, embracing, let's say, this encounter, this experience of God, the actual screwing in to the infrastructure pipes. It's a really simple process. It can be as simple as praying. So I want us to pray right now. Now, for almost all of you, maybe all of you, this prayer will be an affirmation of your faith, and I want you to make it so. But for someone here today, this may be the first time you have said, okay, I want to be in. I believe this. This is really real. And you sense your bones being realigned. If that happens to you, let's acknowledge that together before you leave. But let's do some spiritual aerobics. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray out loud, and I want you, phrase by phrase, and I would like for you to pray this silently on your own. And I want to encourage you this morning to reaffirm this. And in fact, for many of you this morning, as we pray this, would you remember the moment when you felt the, the wires connect and the pipes get plugged in? Would you remember that this morning? That year in your life when it all came together for you, or that day in your room or in a church service when you felt like, this is really real, what? I want you to remember that as you pray this. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for making me and loving me even when I've ignored you and gone my own way. I realize I need you in my life and I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please help me to understand it more. As much as I know how, I want to follow you from now on. Please come into my life and make me a new person inside. I accept your gift of salvation. I welcome an experience of you. Please help me to grow now as a Christian. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so don't go anywhere. It's 10 after, but don't go anywhere yet. Because if you prayed that prayer this morning, that may not apply to any of you, but if you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, or something like that, this is the first time you've ever done that work with God, then I want to give you a chance in a minute to respond to that. Many of you, maybe most of you, maybe all of you, have had this experience period or this experience moment or this experience day, this encounter time. You've had this encounter time in your life. For some of you, this was around a campfire when you were a teenager, as we were saying earlier. For some of you, this was when you were a child and you knew it. God reshaped your bones. For some of you, this happened in your 20s when there was a crisis in your life. For some of you, it happened in your 40s when there was a more dramatic crisis in your life. And the things came together for you. The world took on a different hue. You believed things that before you really believed things. You leaned into things. 
you based your life on things that before that you didn't think you could. I want to remind you that encountering God, listen, don't miss this. Encountering God is not a one-time thing. Being born again is a one-time thing, but a connection to God has to be nurtured by real encounters with Him. You cannot have a real and difference-making connection with God without a life-altering, ongoing experience of God. Jesus makes that experience available to us. Look, if you read the Old Testament, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you see the prophets over and over again. They have many real-time experiential encounters with God. You see it in the disciples in the New Testament. The book of Acts is an unfolding of the disciples repeatedly. They use phrases like they were filled with the Spirit. They have these ongoing encounters with the real God. And His Spirit fills them in new ways. I've seen this many times in my life. I was thinking as I did this, in fact, this is part of what led me to this this week. I was thinking about a conversation that I had with a couple of you before the end of last year, and it was was awesome. It was a very encouraging conversation, and I I came home, and Diane asked me, you know, well, how was your time with so-and-so? And And I've used this phrase before, but I said, holy smokes, I want to become a Christian again. Because I felt God's presence, really felt his presence. I had an encounter with the real God. Oh, it animated my faith. It brought my heart to life again. You cannot nurture a connection with God without ongoing encounters with God. Now, some of you are better than I am. I don't say that lightly. For me, these encounters are not often. My heart is stubborn and tend to doubt. I get busy and... For me, my life is not filled with an everyday encounter of God. But a connection to God cannot be maintained. You can live in the house and you can make the house as pretty as you want to make it. But if the pipes are not cleared every now and then, (laughs) sorry for that graphic image, but you can't maintain a healthy connection with God and you will not have a healthy soul. That's why we practice a creative devotional life. Often for me, not for many of you, I'm sure, but often for me, you know, I go to the Bible and I I try to read it and I read a passage from the Bible and I think real hard and I maybe sometimes will come up with an observation and, okay, now I go do my life. And it's good. It feels a little like it felt yesterday. But once in a while, (laughs) once in a while, once in a while, I read something and I think, oh my gosh, I want to be a Christian again. That's why we come here on Sunday morning. That's why we gather like this. That's why we stand up and Jordan says, okay, now sing this. And we sing. Because once in a while, God's Spirit says, you need to wake up. And we encounter Him. Last point. Jesus makes this connection available to us. This kind of encounter. He, (laughs) you know, Jesus is the plumber. Jesus laid down the pipes. And he, he makes this possible. He built the infrastructure. He brought it up to our house in the middle of the desert. And he stood under the floor, knocking on the floor. Hey, tap in! And we tapped in, and then he keeps those pipes clean. 
That's the whole language about forgiveness. That's the problem with many other kinds of spiritualities. They don't deal with the consequences of the damage that we've done to our relationship to God because we've pursued it our own way. But in Jesus, He took all of that on Himself on the cross. He wiped away that damage and says, all you got to do is ask Me. Hey, 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 just tap in. He makes that connection available to us. He makes it available to us, first of all, by just revelation. He showed us what God the Father is like. He came, He was God squeezed into human skin. Secondly, He made it all available to us because He built, as I said, that the spiritual infrastructure. All right, let's end by reading the, the back half of this section. So this is John 3 again. I won't make you stand again. I'm going to start reading with verse 9, and I'm going to go through verse 14. Jesus, He calls out this image from the Old Testament, a time when they're in the desert and Moses... The people are all getting sick, and God tells Moses, look, as a symbol of my power, my healing capacity, just take a snake, raise it up on a pole, and, and people are going to look at that, and they're going to be healed. And Jesus uses that as an illustration of what he's going to do. So I'm going to be lifted up on a pole, and when I am, the people who look at that and trust in it, they're going to be healed. They're going to have a connection with me. Listen to how this goes down. We start with verse 9. Nicodemus is confused and overwhelmed. By the way, we later get hints, really pretty powerful hints, that Nicodemus probably becomes a follower of Jesus, most likely because of this encounter. Nicodemus says, what? How can this be? Jesus, you can hear him trying to be gentle. Look, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And don't understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. You know, it's often been asked what Jesus is getting at here when he says we. And I'm not alone in this, but I have the sense that what he's really doing is he's kind of tossing a jab at Nicodemus here. If you remember in the very opening of the chapter, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he says this, Rabbi, we know that you are from God. We who are the, you know, we the spiritual ones, we know that you are from God. And I think this is Jesus about 30 seconds later saying, so I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know. And testify, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus, again, he's getting at this revelation business. I came down, God squeezed into human skin to show you what it's like. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And now he gets at that business of being lifted up on the pole. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So here's what I'd like for us to do this morning. I want you to seize these last moments and sing what we're, the song we're about to sing like you mean it. So let's sing this song, and in singing this song, let's thank him for the time when he was beating on our floor saying, hey, tap in, I want to be your sewer pipe. I want to get rid of your, <laughs> that's right, I want to get rid of your junk. 
So just come and confess. Profess me and confess your junk. Let's make this connection happen. Let's bring your life to life. Let's get a real life in your life. I want you to experience God. I want you to remember that this morning. And I want you to be thankful for that this morning. And I want you to be thankful for those repeated times when you have felt His presence. And this morning, remember. Remember. As we sing. We're going to sing a song that borrows another biblical image. We're going to sing the song, Came to My Rescue. We've been rescued. So I want you to remember that this morning. If there's anyone here today who prayed that prayer we prayed earlier for the first time, don't leave without sealing the deal. Let's go old school. We're going to do revival. <laughs> so let's don't, don't leave without sealing the deal. Okay, stand with me. So what we're going to do is we're going to invite God's Spirit to come. Now, He's here, but we're going to make that active. We're going to participate with Him. He's underneath knocking. For some of you this morning, he's, he, he wants to make it fresh and real. You've got your pipes are way backed up. And He's knocking this morning. And so, even though He's here, we need to say yes. So, let's invite Him. And you say yes, and then let's do some work. Let's sing, let's worship, and... Falling on my knees in worship, giving all I am to seek your face. Lord, all I am is yours. My whole life I place in your hands, God of mercy. Humbled, I bow down in your presence at your throne. All right, let's do it. Let's do some work. Let's sing this through. Falling on. Falling on my knees in worship. Giving all I am to seek your face All I am is yours My whole life I've placed in your hands God of mercy, humble I bow down In your presence at your Ah!
Father, thank you for coming to our rescue. Jesus, thank you for making a real connection to God available to us. Not because of what we've done, not because we deserve it. Often, in spite of ourselves. Oh wait, no, always in spite of ourselves. Thank you for the blinding brilliance of your mercy and your forgiveness and your glory. Thank you that that was so clearly on display in the life and ministry of Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you that you are still alive and working today. You give tax relief from reluctant governments. Thank you that you're working here. Guide us and guard us. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. And all God's people said, thanks for coming. Go in peace.